The football pod with Paddy and Andy. Very experienced at last year with Cork. They were complacent. The game plan was set up to prepare for another team, as if they were playing Dublin. That's coming from the coaches. So don't talk about they weren't complacent. They were. Download the OTB Sports app and subscribe to the GAA podcast feed now. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Are you ready for quick start car insurance? Get a quote today at getsetgo.ie. Oh, the shape that will get. If you've got all the fans there. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I'm not playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladici, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, <laughs> politics, uh, health. You know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Now, one of the biggest additions to the Euros this year has been the return of fans to the stadiums and hearing some familiar chants. But where do these chants come from? Well, that is the topic of our conversation tonight because I'm joined on the line by Andrew Lawn, author of We Lose Every Week. Andrew, you're very welcome along. Thanks for having me. We cover a lot of niche stories on this show, but I have to say this is one of the most niche books that I've ever read. Where <laughs> does you. the obsession with football chants come? So it started for me as a Norwich fan um, when I was a really young kid, basically. My dad is a steward at Carroll Road, and he would take me with him, I think, just to get me out of the house. And um, I was probably only sort of four or five, and I'd go and sit in the turnstile with him while he let people in. And then at half time, he'd close the turnstile and we'd, we'd go and watch the second half. And I remember just being absolutely fascinated by the noise. I wasn't really interested in what was happening on the pitch. I was much more interested in the fact that I was watching adults screaming and shouting and swearing, which I couldn't like, believe as a child. Like, you never saw adults behave sort of raucously as a child. So. I was absolutely captivated by watching and listening to the crowd rather than the game. Um, And then as I sort of started following the football a little bit more, I wanted to be part of that noise. I wanted to be in the vocal end. And that's kind of how I got into enjoying football, if you like, was the noise and the passion and being able to make a noise rather than just sort of sitting and passively taking in this kind of entertainment product, but being part of the spectacle. Mm. and then as I say I'm a Norwich fan and our local rivals at Ipswich and the real turning point for me was we had a derby game against Ipswich at the same time that um, a serial killer was murdering sex workers in the town and during the game the Norwich fans were kind of singing about it and celebrating it and I was singing it and celebrating I got completely caught up in the moment and I remember thinking or it's sort of dawning on me that we were singing this atrocious song about this atrocious thing that was going on. And I looked around and there were your kind of, your lads, if you like, your your young males. But there were uh, older men, women, children, grandparents, a a whole cross-section of society were all singing this song. And then I looked at the Ipswich fans and similar, you've got a whole cross-section of society. And they were laughing at the song. And I thought, what, how is this? How is football okay for this to happen? If you went up to someone in a supermarket and said it, it wouldn't be cool. So Mm. what is it about football that makes it cool? And luckily for me, at the exact same time, I was looking uh, for a dissertation topic while at university. And I thought, this this could be it. Because I was reading media at the UEA. And I thought, 
this this is kind of an expression of of humanness but within a very specific context and i think this could possibly be my dissertation so i wrote my thesis on it did loads and loads of research on it and the more research i was doing the more i was finding that all the kind of academic stuff around fandom was based on hooliganism and mm. that wasn't the kind of the full story of what being a football fan was to me so and it gave me this idea of there's this there is a dark underbelly to football chanting but actually it's a much more positive thing than you would get if you only read the newspapers or if you only read academic studies on football fandom and i wanted to kind of tell that story if you like mm. yeah there's been loads written about football fandom and pseudo sociology uh, papers written on it and <laughs> you always get the feeling that these people have never actually been to a football stadium or never actually interacted with football fans. You do touch on a very interesting point there, though, about, you know, the feeling towards football fans and why football fans do this. I have a girlfriend who has absolutely no interest in football, like never watched it, never played it, absolutely does not care about it at all. And sometimes I show her videos of football fans like singing in tandem. And I, I, I think it's incredible that you get men, women, and children from all backgrounds, 60,000 people at times, 100,000 people at times, singing the same song at the same time for the same meaning. So why do you think football fans do that? Well, I think for a number of reasons. The first one is that football is really tribal. So you have that kind of expression of an us identity and a them identity, and chanting is the kind of the most obvious way of expressing that identity. So songs about your team are all full of words like we and us and then songs about the opposition are always you or like a, a kind of other there's a creation of another in part as well i think it's because football you feel like you can kind of involve yourself in the game is slightly different from a sport like tennis or even um rugby or golf or something like you feel part of it and i think part of that is this kind of societal kind of learned behavior you go to a football match expecting to sing because you see it in the media you see this uh presentation of football fans as being loud and raucous and that becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy you go along and you behave in the way that you're conditioned to behave so with football and to take cricket as an example i love football and football is my main sport but i also love cricket i also love golf i also love snooker but i wouldn't go to a snooker uh match at the um at the crucible and start singing songs because my kind of code of behavior is already formed that that isn't how you behave at snooker but it is how you behave at football so mm. i think there's an element of that um and then finally i think it's it's just fun like football is a, quite a long game um being an hour and a half with very sporadic moments of real joy like it's not like rugby where it's quite high scoring or cricket which is a really long game but is, is kind of constant in terms of action. Football is quite a long game in which there's sometimes large periods of time without a goal. And I think there's an element of just kind of having fun and enjoying it and making it exciting when it's not necessarily that exciting on the pitch. Yeah, it needs to be a tradition almost. It needs to be something that everyone can expect what to get when you, when you go to a certain football stadium. In terms of the history of football chanting then, how far does how back does it how far back does it go rather? So it goes all the way back to Victorian England. Um, the very first chant that was written was written by Edward Elgar, the composer. So he was a Wolves fan, and he wrote a song 
about uh, their inside right, a guy called Billy Malpass. And he was inspired by a newspaper report about a goal where uh, Malpass was, which Malpass scored. And it was described as banging the lever for the goal. And Edgar sort of took this line and wrote a chant about it. Unfortunately, it never caught on on the terraces. Um, and it certainly didn't sort of survive. And the first one that kind of stuck, if you like, and is still sung to this day, which was really lucky for me as a knowledge fan, was On the Ball City. And how that came around was quite interesting. The, so the charm is older than the football club. In that at the time, Norwich had five or six different football clubs, um, like working uh, clubs, if you like, work, works teams. Mm-hmm. And they had a sporting dinner at the end of every year where they celebrated kind of the sportingness of the city. So all the football clubs would come together, all the cricket clubs would come together, and there'd just be like a celebration of sport in Norwich. And a guy called Albert T. Smith wrote On the Ball City as a kind of celebratory song to mark this sporting dinner. And then what happened after that was Norwich City was formed and those works teams kind of all came together into one club. And to kind of help with that process of uniting five or six disparate clubs into one, they took that song with them and made it their own kind of song. That did catch on onto the terraces. Um, And then it's just been sung ever since, basically, all the way through. Mm. What you found at first was that there were only really home crowds at football matches like in the early 20th century, late 19th century. So the songs that people were singing, were it was just a home crowd. There was no opposition. And they were all very celebratory of the place. So the oldest chants are all very similar to that. There's On the Ball City, which is very much about Norwich. There's Blade and Races at Newcastle, which is very much about Newcastle and the Northeast. Mm. You've got Play Up Pompey at Portsmouth, which is, again, it's all about Portsmouth. There's no other mention of any other um, club. And it kind of needed the introduction of away fans to games to change that. So they were really parochial at first. And then once you got away fans, you then had an opposition to kind of sing against. And that's where you started to get some of the more sort of modern day antagonistic chants. Mm. And at this point, and I don't mean to <laughs> insult anybody who is part of the, the clubs at this point, but if you look at even one of the famous things for the the Busby Babes was one of the songs was Que Sera Sera. And it's sort of these, you know, jovial songs more than a song about football, like, like a real song of its era is, is what I'm trying to say. Is, is that what you're, what you're seeing at this point as well? Or is it about on-field stuff as well? So, yes, yeah, it's, it's as you say, it's very sort of celebratory, very jovial. Uh, one of the big turning points actually for chanting uh, comes back to Scylla Black, which is an odd thing to think now. But what you found was that Scylla Black and the Beatles made, uh, made themselves famous through their music and they were very much synonymous with Liverpool as a city. So Liverpool as a city became world famous through Scylla Black and the Beatles and through their music. Mm-hmm. And then what the cop did was kind of celebrate that by singing their songs verbatim. So there are some lovely clips um, of Liverpool fans singing She Loves You, for example, just word for word, um, and a couple of Scylla Black songs as well. And what they're doing basically is saying, Liverpool is famous for this amazing thing that we've produced. We're going to replicate that and celebrate our place as well. And that's where you start to get pop songs kind of coming into the scene. And then whenever, if you're an away fan, if the home fans are celebrating a particular thing, then kind of the tribal nature is to kind of take that and tear it down. So what you then had was fans of other clubs adopting those tunes 
but changing the words. So you had things like, so you've got you'll never walk alone. That became you'll never work again. Um, and those kind of things to kind of take a thing that you held really dear and then try and change it to make it mean mm-hmm. something else entirely. The cop has a full chapter to itself, which is it, it come to be expected when you're talking about football stadiums in England, I guess. What is it about the cop that really captures the imagination at this point? So I think there's a couple of things. The first one is that Liverpool are really successful on the field. So they have this kind of aura already. And, and as still happens now, whenever anyone is successful, people outside of the club look to that club or look to that nation within the Euros at the moment and kind of see what they're doing. What, can we, what are they doing that we can copy so we can be successful too? And one of the things was the cop was making loads and loads of noise and singing a load of songs. Liverpool were really successful on the pitch. And people put those together and were like, well, the cop are probably helping the team. Uh, again, to take, there's a Pafé news clip of a reporter say, saying that he's really intimidated by listening to the crowd and the effect must be the same on the opposition. And I think people who, as they started to go to away games, were seeing this happen and think, well, we could do that at our ground. We could make it intimidating. We can support our team. And then maybe we'll be as successful on the pitch as Liverpool are. The other thing with Liverpool was their rivalry of Manchester, particularly Manchester United. Um, so that really took off with the introduction of the shipping canal way back in Victorian Britain. But that kind of animosity between those two cities really came to a head through football and through music. And chanting is football and music combined. So it was a kind of really perfect, fertile ground for those two things to come together. And that rivalry really kicked off I call it in, a book, in the book an arms race of abuse. And that, that's kind of what it was. It was who could be more offensive to the other one because that rivalry was so fierce. Yeah, it's very interesting because if you think about the loudest fans in England, it probably you probably would fall on Liverpool and Manchester United. They're two of the biggest rivals on the pitch. But off the pitch as well, the fans probably do hit each other more than anyone else in the league. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. Like you're you're kind of out competing. You don't want your rivals to be known for being louder than you mm. or being more inventive with chance than you. So there's a constant kind of arms race of we'll be a bit louder, we'll be a bit louder. They've obviously also got in their favour. They've got huge stadiums, so they've got the numbers to be super loud. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There's this case of we we can't be seen to lose in any regard to our to Liverpool or to Manchester. So we're going to be louder, we're going to be more inventive, we're going to be nastier, or we're going to be funnier. Let's talk about the hooliganism, because that is a key role and a key part of football fandom in England, especially. 1980s is when you start to see it really pick up and the abuse is falling from, you know, it's going around the terrace and it's it's becoming violent as well as abusive in, in terms of verbals. And racism is a huge part of this as well. We might touch on the racism a little bit after the hooliganism because I think there are different periods and you know there's different levels to to what was going on. So when do the chants start turning darker? So they they start almost immediately. As soon as Liverpool start singing Silla Black and Beatles songs, then almost immediately they start to get darker. There's a there's a couple of things that prompts it. The first one is that travel to away games becomes cheaper and easier. And particularly working age men are not having to work uh, on Saturday mornings. So the working week has got shorter. So people have more time and it's easier to get to away games. So you suddenly have that kind of tribalism 
uh, take off. Almost immediately, then people are adopting and adapting songs uh, and they use them as a stick to beat each other with. What also happens is in the same way that clubs uh, see the vocals kind of supporters as a help to their to the team and then try and copy that, there's, they also become a kind of badge of honour, if you like, is, is this end is really, really vocal. So Liverpool's cop, the Stretford end at Manchester United, at Norwich is the Barclay, at Newcastle is the Gallagate. Like, these are like really famous badges of honour in a kind of area of the stand. And what you found was that as away fans went to these grounds, the reputation of the cop or the Stretford end went before it. And it was kind of seen as a thing that you could go and invade. And if you could physically invade that space and take it back for yourself, then you were kind of winning a battle. And obviously the home fans don't want to give up their like protected area. And that's where you get the kind of the running battles and the start of hooliganism is this sense of the vocal bit is the kind of the home of the vocal fans. And as away fans, we're going to come, we're going to beat you on the pitch and we're going to take your vocal end and then we're going to claim it as our own. And that causes the violence to start. And again, it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. You know as an away fan that you're, when you're going to a game that you're, you're almost expected to participate in this thing. And if you're a home fan, you kind of expect the away fans to do it. And as a result, you're kind of already on edge and you're kind of expecting trouble where maybe there might not be trouble before. So mm. it all kind of snowballs from that sense of having a thing that's yours and trying to take it from someone else to, to kind of spoil their party and, and to one-upmanship, essentially. Mm. Racism is a big topic of conversation now, especially with the the knee and the booze at Wembley and how that all plays a role and where English fans lie in society now essentially in terms of the 1980s and early 90s you know john barnes is a very famous example of the fact that his own fans were chanting against him because he was black so racism it must have been a, a key part of all of it all of this at this time yeah absolutely so you've got you've got the kind of the tribalism and the hatred already but what you also have is a really disaffected disunited country so particularly under Margaret Thatcher saying things like there's no such thing as society, unemployment is through the roof. And you have football is a kind of is a place where you tend to get. Now, this is a huge generalization and I think it's changing now and for the better. But certainly then you tended to get young working class males and they were the people who were really being disaffected by the government of the time. So you had a huge congregation of really, really angry, frustrated people who didn't really have anywhere to express that anger and that kind of hatred and all of that sort of pent-up emotion. And football was where it then came out. As is always the case when uh, there's economic strife, if, if you are that way-minded, then it's really easy to blame someone else for that problem. And... I don't think it's it's unfair to say that at the time the Conservative government were were fairly keen to blame this kind of increasing immigration as they saw it from from elsewhere. So mm -hmm. Asian communities in particular, uh, the black community in particular, was very much kind of blamed for this economic strife. And you had a situation where you had lots and lots of really angry men who 
didn't have an outlet for their rage, were being told that there was an enemy that was who looked different from them, and they expressed that at football. There's a, there's a famous quote from the time where uh, one of the conservative ministers said to the head of the FA, um, get your uh, hooligans out of my country. And the, the FA guy returns and says, this, this is kind of your problem. Like, they're, they're not football's hooligans, they're society's hooligans, and they just come to football. And in the same way that I was saying earlier about you have a full cross-section of society, if you're a football fan, you're not only a football fan, you're also probably uh, a partner of someone, maybe a parent, you're mm. a brother or a sister, you have a job, so you're a, an accountant or a driving instructor, you're all these other things, and football isn't your one defining characteristic, but football is the place that you can kind of most vocally and most obviously show all of your characteristics. So if you have a, if you have a problem with racism in society, you will see that in football chanting. It's not that football fans are racist, it's that society has a racism problem and football is where that is one of the most obvious places that that's expressed. Mm-hmm. There's some interesting chants as we get along that are very what some people would consider on the line but are, are, are actually way over the line when it comes to uh, racism and homophobia and, but people who are involved in the chanting will say you know it was just a joke so we might come to that a little bit later on because I do think it's important to touch on that but as we go along chronologically the 90s are a much better period for England and you see you know the explosion of Britpop you see financially the country is in a much better position globe the the whole globe sort of opens up with the european union and england fans are um in europe singing songs and i suppose euro 96 is probably the culmination of that when it it's hosted in england and there's the you know oasis are the biggest band in the world how do chance then you know change from the 80s into the 90s what's the evolution of chance at this point so as you touched on the kind of the country gets happier if you like and it gets richer especially as the decade goes on and that is reflected in in football crowds and in football chanting there's also an element of self-policing because most people aren't racist even in a society that has a racism problem most people aren't racist and most people abhor racism so you get fans starting to self-police a little bit and start to sort of stand up for what's right, essentially. So whereas before you might have had four or five uh, people singing a racist song and then it would either be kind of let go or people would kind of join in without really wanting to, you started to get people standing up and saying, no, this isn't, this isn't right, this isn't okay, you can't do that. Partly that's led f- through what is becoming a more uh, visible fan scene so you get the rise of things like fanzines which came out of the kind of the music press and again what you found was that the kind of people who were writing the fanzines again as a a huge generalization but generally the people who were writing the fanzines were were kind of more left-leaning so you got this kind of vocal and visible way to express a new identity and that gave people who weren't maybe left-leaning but also weren't racist the kind of confidence to stand up against that sort of thing. And as society opened up and as you got more diverse uh, groups of people going to football matches, you got more confident uh, people to stand up to this sort of thing. It died out and it didn't ever go away, 
but it certainly died out. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting was that racism died out much, much more, whereas homophobia was kind of more acceptable, if that makes sense, in, in terms of football chanting. And you still get today, you get lots more homophobic abuse, particularly at Brighton, than you do uh, racist abuse anywhere. Um, and it's only now that there's kind of a concerted effort from people to kind of stamp that out too. Uh, it might surprise you to know that there isn't homophobic abuse at football. There isn't a specific law that outlaws that. There is a specific law that out that um, outlaws racist abuse. So yeah. they're not classed the same in law, despite being like both kind of equally damaging. Um, there is a campaign. I think the Lib Dems were leading a campaign to change that, but they haven't had any success yet. Uh, so what you found was people were kind of becoming more self-policing, more socially aware football crowds generally were coming more diverse and the kind of the tone of the nation and the mood of the nation was improving. And as, and as I said earlier with uh, racism, what you found was football chants were reflecting the kind of the mood of the nation. And mm. that was becoming more optimistic, more upbeat. And three lions was then released, which was a really kind of optimistic song that referenced all those years of pain, but was much more optimistic in its outlook. And football fans took that and made it it was kind of a crossover again from pop song to to terrace hit and uh that kind of was reflective i guess of the mood at the time then you had england do well on the pitch now obviously any kind of on-field success gives you a better kind of feeling and i think had england uh drawn to switzerland then drawn to scotland and then gone out in the group stage by losing to the netherlands i don't think we'd still be singing three lions because it would be associated with disappointment as it is, it was associated with this sort of glorious run and this near miss. For all its dark side, football chants can actually be hilarious as well. Like they can, some of the things you you just wonder how people come up with it. And so, how how does humour come in, into all of this? Where where do we start seeing self depreciating songs from? teams that you know aren't really that good good on the pitch but you know their fans are funny where does that all come in so i think that goes back to what i was saying right at the start about a lot of the kind of the focus is on the hooliganism but a lot of chanting isn't isn't that and it's a lot more about community and having fun and celebrating stuff now part of it is that tribalism and that one-upmanship and kind of taking the mick out of someone else so you get the kind of the, the mickey taking chanting that can be quite funny And then some of it is the experience of being a football fan often is that you lose much, much more than you win. And rationally, it doesn't really make any sense if you are, and a Norwich fan is a good example, but if you're a lower league fan and you live in, uh, let's take Plymouth, you live in Plymouth and you're going all the way up to Manchester to follow your team, you're going all the way across to Sunderland, you're coming all the way across to Norwich, you're going to London. Like These are huge distances to travel to support your team and you're probably not going to win. So there becomes this kind of sense of almost like martyrdom, if you like, of aren't we great fans because we go all this way and we lose. So that's where the we lose every week kind of comes from. We lose every week, we lose every week. You're nothing special. We lose every week. And I think there's a lot at play in that. Part of it is you're winning and you're gloating and we're going to take away that joy by suggesting that, of course, you're winning. We're terrible. Mm -hmm. But also it's a little bit of celebrating yourself because you're like, 
aren't we as fans amazing because we lose every week and yet we're still here we're still singing and you you get that referenced a lot with chants like you only sing when you're winning you're not singing anymore um is that all you bring away is a is a really nice one uh they're here they're there they're everywhere empty seats but there's there's so many references to the level of support and how good a supporter you are and a lot of that is tied up in noise and it's tied up in numbers and by singing these kind of self-depreciating songs you're proving what a great fan you are because you're being loud you've come all this way and you're still terrible on the pitch that's kind Mm. of the, the point isn't winning the point is being here and representing your your town or your club and making a load of noise because they're the things that football fans kind of hold dearest and I think there's this kind of element of it's easy to be a Manchester United fan it's easy to be a Liverpool fan you win every week it's really not easy to be a Norwich fan or a Plymouth fan or a Barnet fan like you don't win every week mm-hmm. so there must be something else that makes you do that and I think football chanting really celebrates that unique connection that people have with a place or with a club that isn't rooted in winning at all I don't want to focus on the negatives too much because at the end of the day, football chanting for me is a really positive thing, but there is a line that does cross or does be crossed a lot of the time when it comes to fans who think this is funny, but it's actually not. And one of the chants that comes to mind is the old Gabby Agbon, the horror song. I'm not sure if you remember that one, but it references, you know, his African heritage and uh, his mother and things like this, which are insults and trying to put him off and the fans genuinely do think this is funny, but at the end of the day, it is racist. So <laughs> how many chants do you reckon there are that, you know, started with good intentions, good humor, but are actually, you know, out and out, just don't belong in a football stadium? Yeah, it's a really, really difficult one to clarify, I think. And it's there's a number of reasons for that. One is that what is funny and what is offensive can overlap there isn't a line where you say that's offensive and that's funny and it Mm. can't be either or you can have things that are offensive but are funny and what what makes something offensive or what makes something funny or what makes something both is really really personal to you so you might find something hilarious that i think is awful and vice versa um sometimes things are funny purely because they're awful if you like because it's it's taking a kind of tragedy and then kind of making light of it and trying to make it kind of less painful i guess so it's really really difficult to say this is funny this is offensive this is good this is bad my personal distinction and my personal line if you like is it goes down to the so with every joke there's a victim there has to be a victim for a joke to work um so my personal line is, is, is the thing that you're laughing at the victim of the joke a choice or not a choice? So, for example, uh, if you are laughing at someone's race, that's not okay. They, that isn't a thing that someone chose. If you're laughing at someone's sexuality, that's not okay. That's not something they chose. If you're laughing at the way someone's dressed, that's okay. They chose those clothes. Uh, baldness, I think, is a borderline one. Yeah, I was, I was just going to bring up the baldness one. Is it, people so don't it choose to be bald, but... Yeah, so it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> like, I, I've gone bald. There's nothing I can do about that. 
that's fine. But it also doesn't, it doesn't bother me. So mm. that's one of those ones where you're like, well, I, I didn't choose to go bald, but I kind of did because I could grow tufts of hair. I just know that would look awful. So th- that's a real like fine line one. Um, personal appearance. So one of one of the chants in the in the book that I think sums this up best is uh, the chant that um, Man United fans sang about Liverpool's Luis Suarez, and it was "Your teeth are offside. Your teeth are offside. Oh, Luis Suarez, your teeth are offside." Now, Luis Suarez didn't choose those teeth per se, but it is funny because it's so ridiculous. If you like, you could also argue that because Luis Suarez is really rich. He could do something about his teeth if he wanted. So he's sort of chosen his teeth. Mm. But with Suarez, again, you've got that additional thing of he's got a reputation for biting people. And that context feeds into that. So I really like the Luis Suarez, Your Teeth Are Offside song. But Tottenham fans then copied that for Meza Ozil and sang Your Eyes Are Offside. I don't like that. Now, you could easily say, well, they're the same. They're both laughing at someone's like physical appearance. Mm. But the difference for me is Suarez bites people. So his teeth were a kind of prominent feature of who he is as a player. And you can have dental surgery to correct teeth. It's, you can't have eye surgery to correct having slightly bulgier eyes. So it's a really difficult one. And I'm very aware that it's a contradiction that I like one and I don't like the other. But that kind of is the joy of football chanting. It's it's taking a thing that you recognise about someone and then you turn it around and you make it a criticism or you make it funny or you make it offensive. And mm. and where you draw that line is impossible to say. Yeah, and listen, there again, I would probably completely agree with you in terms of the, you know, racism, the homophobia stuff. Like none of that belongs in football stadiums at all. But in terms of appearance and clothing and things like that, some some footballers, you know, buy into it a little bit as well, and they'll get involved if they're if they score against a, a team that's been singing songs against them, they'll go up and, and celebrate in front of them. So you know, there, there's there's two sides to it as well. In terms of the uh, different chants around the, the different stadiums and different countries, I would say that. I, I grew up a Celtic fan, so Scottish football culture, Celtic football culture, for me is different to English football culture because of it's completely different fan experience going there. So, European football fans, what what's the key differences between what they chant and what sort of British clubs would chant? Yeah, abs- I think you're absolutely right. Uh, some of it comes back to kind of culture, um, and kind of what is important in the culture. So. British people are kind of very, very focused on having a good sense of humour. Like that's deemed a really important character trait by British people. And as a result, humour plays a really large part in football chanting in this country. Um, One of the things we don't have in Britain that you have, in, in my opinion, much better, but much more overt elsewhere, is sport being political. So in England, in particular, we have this real thing of keep politics out of football and you see it with the knee and you see it with all sorts of things but you can't you can't untangle those two things because it's community so celtic and rangers obviously have have kind of started off religious it's maybe more political now but politics and religion is a huge part of that identity which Mm. it isn't as a norwich fan but there isn't and in any way near that same thing so the experience is going to be different 
purely from that point of view. Um, Germany, there's a little bit of humour in the chanting, but humour isn't as important. And in Germany, it's much more about celebrating your team and it's much less antagonistic to the opposition. So you get much more pro your team support, much more like Britain was in the kind of the early 20th century. Uh, South America is really kind of carnivalesque and colourful and noisy. And again, these are all huge generalisations, but that's kind of, it, it goes back to that same thing of a football crowd isn't a unique thing. It's made up of all the people that are in it. Mm -hmm. And you all bring those kind of cultural and those personal things into the stadium with you. Don't leave them at the door. And you are tuned to kind of behave in that, in that slightly different way. So, uh, as well as knowledge, I follow St. Pauli, who are a German second division team, uh, quite closely related to Celtic, actually got a real friendship between the clubs. And the first time that I went to watch St. Pauli, I, in the first couple of minutes, there was a contentious throw-in decision. And I was the only one who screamed for the, for the throw-in to be awarded to St. Pauli. And everyone sort of looked at me like, what, what are you doing? And that cultural thing of appealing for every decision just wasn't a thing in Germany. Right. Like, they just, they didn't. And then from sort of then on, I stopped doing it because it was, it was kind of the condition of how you support it in Germany was slightly different. So it's really, really interesting to go and watch football in other countries and see kind of what is important and what isn't important. Uh, similarly with uh, corners at Norwich, whenever Norwich get a corner, there's a huge roar of approval. It's, it's had a really exciting moment. That wasn't necessarily the case at St. Pauli. Like there was a, a murmur of applause and there's this thing where they all get their keys out and they rattle their keys to greet a corner. But there wasn't this like, oh, it's a real chance to score. It was much more like, oh, we've got a corner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is really weird. Like when you first go and experience it, but it's also, it's a really cool thing to go and experience. So you absolutely get a very different experience in different countries. And I would argue that you probably get a very, very different experience from club to club. So mm. your experience of going to Celtic is going to be different to my experience of going to Carroll Road. It's probably different to an experience of a Newcastle fan going to St. James's Park or a Plymouth fan going like, I think this kind of element of being the sum of all of its parts and being very local has a real impact as well as that kind of condition of how you, sh how you should behave. So I'd love to go to a Celtic game and I'd love to stand with a green brigade and I know before I go what would kind of be expected of me. It would be a lot of singing. It would be a lot of jumping up and down. It would be waving flags and not necessarily watching the game. Whereas if I went to, uh, let's say, Old Trafford, then if I'm not in the Stretford end, it's much more going to be sitting there expecting to win, watching the game, sort of grumbling if things aren't going for you. And it, mm. again, huge generalizations, but you you have this kind of expectation, you have this difference in terms of how you go and you have this different expectation on the game itself. So as a Norwich fan going to watch, say, Norwich against Manchester United, I'm not expecting us to win. So every corner that we win, if we score, that's a much, much bigger deal to me as a Norwich fan than it would be for a Manchester United fan at the same game because our expectations of on-field performance would be different too. Mm. So there's, there's so much contextualness around your experience of going to the football part of it is is your politics and your your kind of expectation expectation of on the field performance but it's also partly sort of who you are and what you want to get out of football 
it's funny that you can see the influence of different fans on each other. And I think European fans have had a huge influence on British fans over the last probably 10 years. I mean, the I think everybody wants to be the yellow wall in Borussia Dortmund and um, have that sort of experience that that Borussia Dortmund are able to provide on a, a Champions League night. I went to a Vancouver Whitecaps game a couple of years ago in the MLS and their experience of football is really different to what the English uh, fans will be used to. But you can definitely see the influence there as well. They've got similar enough chance, but they've got song sheets to go with that chance. So the fans actually get handed a piece of paper going in. They're expected to sing and get involved. But also now, which is very interesting, is with Los Angeles FC and some of the other clubs on the West Coast, you're seeing the hooliganism element, the 90s element, and almost they're, they are sort of morphing themselves into what English fans were in the 90s or early or late 80s and thinking that's what football culture is. So it's interesting that they've adopted that style. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, especially with the rise of the internet and YouTube. Like you, It's much, much easier now to see what is happening elsewhere and to kind of take the bits that you like. So as you say, everyone wants to be the yellow wall. And at Norwich, um, I was part of a group that introduced a load of flags and stuff to the Barclay to try and refresh the fan experience and to be more German and more continental in its outlook. Um, and I think other clubs are taking that as well, like the rise of TIFOs and huge banners and flares really started in Italy and then it spread to South America and it's now come back to Europe. Um, and all of these things, it's, it's kind of like cherry picking the bits that you like and then taking them for yourself. And as you say, in America and uh, the US, they really look to Britain as to what a fan culture could be or should be. And they are starting to take on that that element of it being more aggressive and more tribal and more violent, because that that is kind of the culture that is was being portrayed, and I think it's still being portrayed to an extent. It's much less so now, um, but it comes from that rise of having that kind of identity and creating the us and them. And then there's there's certain ways you can take that. You can either make it inclusive and celebratory, or you can make it dark and violent. And yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to see how different clubs take different things and different support groups. So you sometimes get a group of fans at a club, um, you get, say, two ultra groups that completely disagree with each other. And this happens at uh, Casablanca, at Raja Casablanca in Morocco. You've got two very separate ultra groups who absolutely love Raja Casablanca, but detest each other. So they'll compete with each other on the terrace, which is another interesting dynamic. Mm. TIFOs are probably one of the best things that have come over the water in terms of Europe because, I mean, some of the ones that Celtic have had in Europe and against Rangers over the last 10 years have been outstanding stuff. They really do add to the spectacle of of, of what the game should be. Before we finish up, uh, England are obviously doing quite well in the Euros. Um, are, you, are you an England fan? I, I feel like it's a controversial thing to be at the minute. I am. Um, and I, I want England to do well. But I'm not devastated by it if they do well. I really like Gareth Southgate um, and I really like the squad of players that he's got, both as players and as humans. They seem like really just like genuinely decent people. You've got Marcus Rashford, you've got Raheem Sterling. Like These are people who've put up with a lot and haven't responded negatively but have really held their head up high. So I want England to do well because I like them as people. 
but I'm certainly not one of those people who goes into a tournament desperate for England to do well. And as soon as England are out, I don't care. Like I've got a real soft spot for all of the home nations. I always want Scotland to do well. I always want Wales to do well. I want Ireland to do well. And then there are other countries that I just like. So I'd like Germany to do well. Um, that said, on Tuesday when England beat Germany, I wanted England to beat Germany. But had Germany beat England, I would have supported Germany from there on out. I really like mm. Sweden because they play in yellow. That's the only reason. I really like the Netherlands because they play in orange. Again, only reason. Um, so I, I would say I'm an England fan. And if I had to choose who won Euro 2020 before we started, it would be England. But I'm certainly not someone who's going to be devastated when we go out. It's like a, it's a nice to have rather than an essential. Right. Interesting. You're you're an, a unique England fan then, because <laughs> any England fan that I've met has been, you know, absolutely want England to win this, regardless of who they have to kill to get there. With the Scotland game, for example, I was I genuinely I was glad it was a draw because it meant that Scotland weren't out. It gave mm. both teams a chance of going through. And I, before that game, I would have chosen a draw rather than an England win for that reason, because I, I like all the home nations. I, I want them to do well. Yeah, that's that's an odd thing as well for England fans because I, I do feel like that is a thing that England fans have in them is that they do want to see Scotland do well, they do want to see Ireland do well, whereas Irish fans and Scotland fans, you know, as soon as England are out, it's celebratory time. And I, I fall into that category as well. I can't wait to see England do well. It's not down to the team because, again, like you said, you know, Raheem Sterling, uh, Rashford, the, Grealish, all these players are players that I watch weekly and really enjoy and really like as human beings. But the English media, I think, are what uh, I think everyone are, are waiting to see, feel and see their reaction. But it is a very interesting thing. And the chanting is, is very interesting as well. So we lose every week by Andrew Lawn. Where can people get the book? So it's published through Ockley Books, which is O-C-K-L-E-Y. But it's in most major bookstores. Um, it's online. Like You only need to Google it and you'll find it. Um, I always put it on Twitter almost every day because I'm so ridiculously proud of having, well, not only done it, but actually physically done it because it was <laughs> it was hard work. So uh, yeah, there's, it's available in all the usual places that you would get a book. Yeah, and I'll stick a link to the book as well on the uh, podcast as well and on the YouTube as well. So you can get the uh, Underlawn We Lose Every Week book and learn all about football chance. Andrew, thanks very much for joining me tonight. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.